So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to do something that breaks the trend from the past few weeks. We're only looking at part of one chapter instead of multiple chapters. So it should be an hour sermon tops. Um, no. While you're flipping to 1 Samuel chapter 7, I'll ask you a question. What is the goal of a mathematic equation? The goal is to find a solution. It's to find the answer. But to find the solution to a problem, you must first solve the equation. And in order to solve the equation, you have to follow the basic laws of mathematics, like the order of operations. You can't do addition or subtraction until you've done the multiplication or the division. And you can't multiply or divide until you've dealt with exponents. And you can't deal with the exponents unless you have first handled anything in parentheses. And yes, I had to look that up to remember all those steps. But the lesson is that there are steps that must be taken before arriving at the solution. And non-Christians and Christians alike, they all want to live a peaceful and a fulfilling life. But what non-Christians and don't understand and sometimes Christians forget is that there are prerequisites for living a peaceful and a fulfilling life. A good life can only come through walking faithfully with the Lord. And with that faith, there must be repentance, victory, and peace. In other words, there's something akin to an order of operations with faith. Before peace, there must be victory. And before victory, there must be repentance. For the Lord has called us to walk and to live in a certain way. And because we are God's people, we must walk by faith. And that's the big picture of the thesis, if you will, of this sermon. So with that, Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll start in verse 2, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistine, lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. 
Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. We're going to look at three points, three sections to that text in the sermon this morning. And the first kind of thing we're going to look at is faith and repentance. And there we'll be looking from verses 2 through 6. So we left off last week with Israel in a state of spiritual lethargy and inaction. The ark finally came home after a seven-month victory tour through the land and the cities of the Philistines. And during that time, the reader might have expected that losing the ark, losing the high priest and his sons, and then losing 34,000 men because of a rebellion might have led Israel to repentance. You should expect that outcome. But instead, Israel had still not learned to give honor to Yahweh. And because of even more disobedience on their part and failing to give weight to God's glory, 70 more men died. But again, instead of repenting, Israel did what? They just moved the ark. They moved the ark from Beth Shemesh to Kiriath Jerim. So rather than confessing of their own sin, they imitated the Philistines' tactic of simply moving the ark along to another town. And then, after all that, maybe there was a great explosion in repentance and faith, right? But still no. Instead, 20 years go by. For 20 years, there is a spiritual question mark over Israel. Who is Israel? Are they Yahweh's special people, or have they become altogether worthless? Well, now in verse 2, we see a spark of hope in answer to that question. It says, Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, the word for lament means a sorrowful growing. It is a deeply felt grief. And this grief is described as one that is seeking after God. So for two decades, there was nothing happening and almost no growth occurring in Israel. But then out of nowhere, Israel wanted to be in a relationship with the Lord. And notice that the author, he doesn't list any specific cause for this lamenting. They weren't said to be sad about being punished. They weren't being held at gunpoint with no other choice. It seems that of their own free will and volition and recognition of their sin and separation from God, they were mourning. Now, there were likely circumstances going on that helped precipitate that change of heart, but the author does not list them specifically. And I believe because of that, we are to understand that there is one specific cause for this lamenting. The Spirit of God was at work moving Israel to faith and to repentance. 
And this is where the servant whom the Lord raised up was brought to center stage to lead the people to the truth. Now, we last saw Samuel over 20 years ago in chapter 3. And that's when he began prophesying God's word to all Israel. And in that chapter, he was presented as the literary and spiritual antithesis of Eli and his crooked sons. And now, years later, fully grown into a mature leader, Samuel re-enters the story. Now, likely in his early 30s, God would officially establish Samuel as a judge over Israel, as the final judge over Israel. So though he had already likely been ministering in Israel for the past two decades, it is not until this point that Israel seeks the word in faith. Do you notice that? 20 years of preaching before they seek the Lord in faith. And how often we think that if we just say the right words, that if we just use the right verses, that we will save people, that we'll fix whatever the problem is, and that everything will then be perfect. Samuel preached for years before Israel responded. And it's very likely that he was prophesying and preaching for the full 20 years leading up to this moment. And the lesson for us there is simple. Faith depends not on our own efforts or desires, but upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are still required to continue preaching just as Samuel did. Even if we cannot see the fruit, we keep on declaring God's word. We remain steadfast in prayer and we ask the spirit to move in power and awaken those who are asleep. So Samuel, who had been faithful to his task, saw something strange taking place in Israel that had not occurred in his entire lifetime. Israel wanted to believe and to be reconciled to God. But knowing that it is not enough to simply do or say the right things, Samuel addressed their hearts. Now, Samuel undoubtedly was concerned about false repentance, and so he gave three commands to Israel. So if you're really wanting to return to the Lord, then you must do these three things. Failing to perform any of these three will show that you're not truly seeking after the Lord, because a true change must result in fruit, and the sincerity of worship, or it is a false conversion. So first, Samuel commanded Israel to put away the foreign gods. The high places and the false gods like the Ashtoreths and the Baals, they had to be completely removed from Israel. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East to add new gods to your old one. You didn't have to get rid of your old gods when you brought in a new one. You just added it to the family, so to speak. You created a pantheon of gods. But Yahweh will not tolerate idolatry or syncretism. Israel was called to destroy any hints of paganism or idolatry from their midst if they were to serve the Lord. So just as Jacob commanded his household to destroy all their household idols in Genesis 35, and Joshua commanded Israel to put away their false gods in Joshua 24, so now Israel must cast off all fake gods. Now, to serve those gods required sacrifices. Sometimes there was cult prostitution and there were a litany of other evil practices involved. So this change, this casting out, it was not just changing out the flag on the front porch. They were committing to a complete change in their way of life, as well as promising not to hold back any idols as a backup plan if the whole Yahweh thing didn't work out. 
God requires complete and total allegiance. So that was the first thing. Second, Samuel commanded Israel to direct your heart to the Lord. So repentance does not just involve casting off the old, but also directing your heart to the new. So that heart that was once set on worldly things and idols, it must be redirected to God. It's not simply enough to change your outward behavior, but then maintain the same idolatry and evil in your heart. Truly going to God means you must address your heart and your actions. Additionally, worship just by nature is a very directional activity. When we worship, whether an idol or the Lord, we are setting ourselves towards something. Therefore, if Israel is to truly believe, then they must go to God in faith and set their hearts to truly seek after him. And then third, Samuel commanded Israel to serve him only, serve Yahweh only. So if that first command to Israel was really focused about outwardly behaving as Christians, and that second command is about setting your heart on God, then this final command is to address the motivations and the thoughts of the mind. There's both a negative and a positive element to this command. Negatively, Israel is to reject the possibility of serving anything or anyone else other than Yahweh. But then also positively, Israel is to seek and obey, or seek to obey and serve the Lord in everything that they do. The entirety of their lives in body, mind, and soul must be lived out in a desire to please the Lord through obedience and righteous living. The threefold call of Samuel, these three commands are a complete and a radical call to a life of devoted faithfulness. It's not time to hold anything back. It's impossible to worship the Lord and false gods. They cannot address only one area of their lives and then leave the rest alone. Inwardly and outwardly, Israel must submit themselves completely to God's rule. Israel must be holy because God is holy. He has chosen them to be his people. Therefore, they must live according to their calling. Samuel has called them to repentance and faith. So now the question is simple. Will Israel obey and go to the Lord? Well, in verse 6, Samuel gathered all of Israel together in Mizpah to put the questions to them. But unlike earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that Israel actually hears God's words from Samuel and obeys. They fast and they repent of their sins. And through their actions, we see both an inward and an outward change in the sons of Israel. They even are said to pour out water as a part of this fast. And the idea behind this practice was that they were pouring out their hearts to God and declaring their sincerity. As necessary as water is for life, Israel was declaring that a right relationship with Yahweh was more important. They were willing to give up one of the most essential necessities of survival to show the need of their hearts. And notice Israel didn't go to God in arrogance or in pride. They weren't presuming upon his grace. They didn't demand forgiveness because they were good enough, they thought. They went to God broken and humility and giving proper weight to the holiness and the glory of Yahweh. 
So really what we see is that the Spirit of God was at work in Israel, applying the word that Samuel had been preaching for decades to awaken a people who had long been asleep. Corporately and individually, Israel had been awakened to new life. That brings us to the second point. So this is faith and victory, looking at verses 7 through 12. So Israel, being awakened from their spiritual slumber, was an amazing thing. Furthermore, Samuel gathering all Israel together to repent and to renew their faith was a wonderful thing as well. There was a national revival taking place across the land. And all this took place in the city of Mizpah, about seven miles north of Jerusalem. And the name Mizpah means watchtower or guard tower. This was really a defensive location with national significance already. So right away, in being called to Mizpah, Israel should know that they are being assembled there as a call to action. And this gathering is first and foremost for spiritual action. But assembling together was also a problem, politically speaking. The Philistines, who had subjected the Israelites to servitude, were the bosses of Israel at this time. And if there's one thing as a ruler of another people that you don't want to see, is that other people gathering together and reestablishing their national identity. And it's likely that gathering at any place had been banned, forbidden by the Philistines. And yet we see Israel gathering at Mizpah, essentially renewing the covenant with Yahweh. So the Philistines, they hear about this gathering, and they gather their troops to go and quell this Israelite uprising, this rebellion. Militarily speaking, Israel, they stood no chance against the Philistine army. So unsurprisingly, the Israelites were rather scared of the Philistines when they hear that they're marching against them. So Israel is terrified. There's an enemy marching to their gates. The question now is what will Israel do when faced with this threat? Will they turn to human ingenuity? Great battle plans? Will they try to use the ark as a weapon again? Or will they truly turn to the Lord with their whole hearts? And this whole idea of an enemy attacking the moment new faith emerges is nothing new or unique. When faith takes hold, the old masters of sin attack. Satan hates God's people, and he will do whatever he can to prevent that seed of faith from becoming established. So whether he attacks through the old nature, through persecution or temptation, he is a cunning foe. And we would be wise to remember the tactics of our adversary. And Israel, just like any new convert today, was at a critical point. In this text, we see a physical picture of what happens spiritually to every new believer. Israel had not yet had time to become mature in their new way of life. Satan was attacking Israel to try to keep them enslaved under sin. But God was at work, meaning Satan's plans would never succeed. So rather than using the ark as a weapon as they had attempted 20 years before, Israel goes to their intercessor, And they pled for mercy from God. There's no mention in the text of their military defenses, of their organization, or of their fighting prowess. Not one hint. Instead, the people say to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
There's no attempt at self-sufficiency. There's no attempt at human skill. The people of God understood clearly that there was nothing they could do on their own to rescue themselves. So they submitted themselves to the only one they knew who was capable of helping them. And here also we see the role of Samuel in all of this. He'd already been named a judge over Israel to lead them, but he takes up no physical weapons and he does not enter into any literal field of battle. And yet Israel asks him to perform the most important and crucial task of the day. He operated as their priest, their representative to God. Israel knew they could not approach Yahweh on their own. They knew they needed a mediator and an intercessor to carry their prayers for them to God. So really, this was an acknowledgement by Israel that there was an immense spiritual battle taking place behind this physical one. Worship is the means by which Israel truly conquers, not human strength. And we see this by looking at the descriptions we have in this text, not of the battle, but of this offering Samuel gave to the Lord in verses 9 and 10. The young lamb not only consecrated the people of Israel, but it also represented their young, newfound faith. And just as the lamb was completely given over to the Lord as a whole burnt offering, so Israel was spiritually offered as a whole offering to God. And it was a total acknowledgement of God's supremacy and lordship over them. So even as Samuel makes this offering before God, God was moving in power already. Now the reader might expect that Israel would go out in faith and they'd fight and win the battle next. That that would be the next thing you would read. But before you can even get to that, God performs a miracle for his people before they can even start to fight. It says, Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel. Israel went to the Lord in repentance and faith and God acted in power to defend his children. And the way in which he fought against the Philistines is significant for a couple of reasons. First, every battle at this time in the ancient world was thought to be a battle, a theological one between gods of the land. Thunderstorms and lightning were also seen to be signs to ancient armies that a god was angry. So the Philistines, they see this storm and they recognize that the Lord is angry with them, that things are not going well in their battle or going to go well. But second, the means that God uses are fascinating because both Dagon and Baal, typical Philistine gods, were supposed to be gods of the storms, gods of thunder, gods of lightning, controlling the rain. Those are supposed to be their things to control. But the God of Israel, Yahweh, is using those supposed abilities against them. The pagan army was soundly defeated theologically first, and only then did Israel physically pursue and defeat them. And here we see words from Hannah's prayer coming to fruition. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah, Samuel's mother, said that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And here also we see an amazing connection between God sovereignly working and also human responsibility. It was the Lord who moved in power to first awaken his people through the preaching of the word by Samuel. 
God wins the battle and then sends out Israel to complete the mission. God was powerfully at work in miraculous ways, and yet the responsibility of Israel to obey was still 100% there. And this is summarized well by Samuel's actions in verse 12. He memorialized what God had done by setting up a stone along the way in the battle, and he called it Ebenezer. And this was to recognize that God was the one who gave Israel victory on that day. And the only way to respond to victories of any sort is in worship and in thanksgiving to the one who provided those victories. So just as Israel praised God for that great victory, so we are to memorialize and give thanks to God for every spiritual victory. Every conversion, every broken sinful habit, every awakening and each revival are the results of the Lord at work because victory is the Lord's. That brings us to the final point, faith and peace. Looking at verses 13 to the end of the chapter. So with the great victory of the Lord over the Philistines came a certain level of peace to Israel. The Philistines were subdued and they no longer had the strength to fully invade Israel. Now they didn't cease to exist. They didn't stop being a threat in terms of trying to attack and reclaim territory. They still had enough power to try to fight, but there was a huge problem that made them entirely ineffective. The text says that the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Israel had not grown in military might, power, or ability. The sole reason that victory and preservation came to Israel is that they were walking with the Lord. Samuel, as the intercessor of Israel, led them in faithfulness to the Lord and his commands. Therefore, the old enemy could not regain a single foothold or or power over them. And not only were the Philistines unable to capture any more territory, they also lost the territory they had already taken from Israel. So with his help, God's people, they marched throughout the land and they retook all the cities that had been lost all the way up to the original Philistine border. And the lesson here for Israel is simple. If they followed the Lord with their whole heart, no enemy could stand before them. Because if God is with you, then there is nothing on this earth that can touch you. Of course, this was physically true for Israel, but it also represented the nature of their spiritual warfare and the health of the nation. That war with the Philistines was really a master's course in faithfulness and in obedience for Israel. And that lesson is no less valuable for us as the church today. Through Christ, we not only receive the initial victory over our old nature and when we are converted, but we also are given the tools we need to continue the fight against sin throughout our lives. Every day, individual believers in the church corporately continue to fight against their old natures in the world. But if we fight on our own, we lose ground. If we treat God or the Bible like a trinket to wield against the foe, we fail. The success of the Israelites and the church are dependent upon the same single truth, and that is Christ in you. And it is in that state of faith and dependence that we are to follow what 1 Corinthians 10.5 says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
And in this, we have great hope because Jesus has already promised us success in every undertaking of faith. As 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, everything necessary for salvation is guaranteed by Christ. And so even as we continue to fight battles in this life, we can do so with the knowledge that victory is already assured. And that's a crucial lesson for us to grasp as the church if we are to be fruitful. We see another principle at the end of 1 Samuel 7:14, And it's one we can learn from as the church. So now with the Philistines more or less under control, the Amorites realized that there was a new military force to be reckoned with. But rather than fighting, they decided that being at peace with Israel was a good idea to avoid defeat. So they did not come to the faith, but they saw enough of God's power in Israel that they didn't want that fight. So that didn't make them allies with Israel, but they were at peace, at least for the time being. So faithfulness to God and his word brought victory and peace to all of Israel. And in that victory, we see the Lord being honored by even foreign nations to an extent, like the Amorites. I think what we see there is an early example of Matthew 5, uh, 17. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It also lines up with Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then again in Psalm 34:14, it commands us to seek peace and pursue it. So Samuel led Israel in fighting when they needed to and making peace where they could. And that same balance is actually something we have to strike within the church as well. So as an example, we have to preach and stand fast against dangerous heresies and against worldly thinking. But we cannot only address those dangers. Because we must also positively build up and preach the gospel and godly living. So to focus only on heresy and error is to neglect the positive elements of the gospel. But then again, to never fight against those heresies leaves the church vulnerable. And so a balance is necessary. And really that is the purpose of peace. It allows us to positively build up with the gospel. So in summary, we see a tremendous lesson in this text that physically pictures the spiritual realities of salvation. God preaches his word through his servants. Then he implants and awakens men to the gospel in his good timing. And this awakening requires that the old nature be defeated and pushed out of the heart. Now, that old nature doesn't cease to exist, and it can still threaten the believer in this life. But as we go to Christ, as we go to our perfect mediator, he intercedes for us before the Father. And then the Lord moves in power to defeat our enemies and to set us at peace with those around us so that we might grow in our faith. The Lord is mighty to save his people. At the same time, the work of the Lord does not negate human responsibility to behave correctly. You cannot earn your own salvation. You cannot win fights on your own against your old nature or the world. Only by going to God in repentance and faith can you ever conquer. Only by denying all human strength, running to Christ, and pleading with him to intercede for you before the Father can you be saved. Only by going to the Lord with a childlike faith 
and dependence can you be rescued from Satan, the world, and yourself. So the only way you will ever see growth in yourself individually or in the church is to completely and totally offer yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. It's only by recognizing the infinite worth and necessity of knowing Christ can you bear fruit. Israel wholeheartedly turned to the Lord and declared that being in a right relationship with Him was more important than water. Knowing God is more important than anything else in this life. They declared their desire to die if Yahweh was not their God. So are you willing to give up everything for the joy of knowing and serving Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the model and the lessons that we see in this text. Most of all, that in Christ we have an intercessor and a mediator through whom we can plead our case to the Father. That we can plead for mercy and for grace and for assistance against the foe. Because Satan, the temptations of the world and our own own old natures, they don't go away when we become believers. They stick around, they try to tempt us, they try to lure us, and yet we know through faith, by clinging to Christ, that you will give us the strength to overcome them that you will preserve us until the day when you, when you call us home. So, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray for faithfulness to trust and believe in your word. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.